Okay, now we're going to get back into the book of Malachi. Kind of a review. You turn over there to chapter 2. In Malachi, this is the uh, last of the minor prophet books that you find in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the last of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And, and just as a quick review, I was telling you that as a minor prophecy, uh, this book is authored by the prophet Malachi. And then uh, also, to give you a time frame, if you recall, I shared with you before that Malachi was written because Malachi lived generally in that time period of middle, the middle 5th century B.C. So uh, 400 plus years before Jesus was even born, Malachi was on the scene. This is after the children of Israel have been in captivity in Babylon and subsequently in Persia. And they've been allowed by God's grace to return to the homeland. They've rebuilt much of the city, rebuilt the temple to some extent. And they have re-engaged in their Jewish practices of religion, sacrifices and, 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 and special holidays or special uh, uh, feast days and those types of things. You, you would also be interested to know that contemporary with Malachi are two other biblical characters who also have Bible books in the Old Testament. Ezra, who uh, was there on the scene just a little bit before uh, Malachi. Uh, just a few years for that matter. Malachi was writing during the time period somewhere 433, 424 B.C. But then uh, Nez uh, Ezra and then Nehemiah. You remember the cupbearer for the king of Persia who was allowed to take a delegation of Jews back to Jerusalem. And so he was the first wave. There was Nehemiah. Then came Ezra who was more like a scribe and interested in the law and the promoter of teaching the law. And, and, so, and then Malachi. And so these three were basically on the scene at the same time in that same area working with God's people, delivering the word of God <clears throat> there. Now it's interesting to note, don't, don't lose sight of this. Because when we reach the end of the book of Malachi, when we read the very last verse, which would be verse 6 of chapter 4, understand, this will be the last word from heaven to the people of God the Jews for approximately 400 years or a little over 400 years they won't hear from heaven after Malachi speaks his last word so what we are, what we are studying and, 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 and learning and internalizing are the last words before that long period of silence and we'll talk about that more when we get into chapter 4 but today I want to take you to chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 5 together. And so let's look first at chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord is, is speaking here. He says, My covenant was with him. Speaking of Levi, the tribe of the, the priestly tribe. My covenant was with him. One of life and peace. I gave them to him that he might fear me. And by that, not cowering in fear, but, but deep love reverence. That which God expects of you and I, by the way, we should fear the Lord. And so, uh, that they might fear me. So he feared me. He was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth. And injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned away, turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And by the way, he's speaking, when he says he, the implication is it's a plural reference to the priest. And this is occurring thousands of years before this time this is when God establishes his priesthood that tribe of priests so what we're going to see as we look at chapter 2 verses 5 through 9 you're going to see God's contrast and depiction of his priest the ones that he's reading about here and then a little later we're going to see the ones he's talking about in the day of Malachi but first let's concentrate on verses 5 through 7 because here we see his praise for faithful priesthood and functioning covenant. God was looking back to the glory days. You know, it's interesting. If you go back to the book of Numbers, 
Which is the time period that God is speaking of when he's talking about in verses 5 through 7. But when you go back to the book of Numbers and you read there, when the, the, the priesthood was actually established, it's interesting. You, I'll take you back to, to chapter 18, but, but in, in your Bible reading time, I would encourage you to go back and read in chapter 16 and 17 to understand the background. Man, you're talking about one of those uh, Indiana Jones type adventure settings, dramatic. Uh, what was unfolding was there was a, a bit of an insurrection, a rebellion by the people of God against Moses and Aaron, the designated leaders. In fact, they were saying to Moses and Aaron, who gave you the right to tell us what to do? We're all equal. We're just as holy as you are. I mean, what, what distinguishes you to be able to tell us what to do? So, you know, Moses basically challenged the, the three ringleaders, Korah and Dathan and, and Abram. And, and I'll just paraphrase, but you go back and read it. I mean, this is mind-blowing. He says, okay, you, you want to see where God has maybe got his hand on us and, and why we are qualified? He says, I'll tell you what. He says, call all the people together. Let them get in front of the tents of Korah and Datham and Abraham. And, and so Moses basically says, okay, you guys stand in front of your tents. And he told the rest of the Israelites, he said, basically, if I were you folks, I'd move back. I wouldn't want to associate or be close to these guys. And then, and then Moses goes on. Talk about a man of faith. Talk about a man who understood the mind and, and, and the nature of God. He, he said, okay, if these men standing in front of their tents with all of their children, all their wives, with their wives and children, livestock, everything that belongs to them, if they are just as equal to rule as we are, then let them just live and then die of a natural death or something that is ordinary. But on the other hand, if by chance God has indeed chosen Aaron and me, and God has select leaders that he wants to minister on behalf of his people to lead the people. He says, if by chance that happens to be God's way, if that's God's desire. Now let something, oh, let's see. Hmm. Let's see the earth open up and swallow them up. And Moses had told the people, now don't get too close to them. I wouldn't associate with that gang. You might want to distance yourself. Gave them clear warning. As soon as Moses spoke, just as he said by word, God opened up the mouth of the earth, so the scripture says. I mean, just literally, you're talking about sinkholes in Florida. This will make them look like just a puddle. Listen, God opened up the earth. And when God opens up the mouth of the earth, ladies and gentlemen, it says that he opened up the earth right there in front of the tents of these three rebellious men, the leaders, the ringleaders, and the earth began to swallow them up. Their families, their livestock, their tents, them, everything that anybody associated with, everything that was close by, sucked right down, and it says right down into the pit. You may have seen one of the first renditions of people that went into hell alive. That got the attention of the people. And so then, in chapter 18 of Numbers, God proceeds to say to Moses, Now, set apart. Set apart Aaron. And set apart Aaron's tribe, the tribe of the Levites. Because God says, I will have a priestly tribe. I will have, in the midst of my people, designated intercessors, those who will serve on behalf of the people who will bring the sacrifices and have my blessing to come into the very presence of the holiness of God. And God says, and don't let anybody else, anybody, no exceptions, anybody else but the Levites dare come into my presence or kill them. That's how strong God is. When he sets his pattern, he does it with intentionality. And with dire consequences as well. So, but, but in this, don't let the, the overwhelming power and justice and wrath of God take away from the love of God. Because God was doing this out of love. He didn't want his people inadvertently and casually and, 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 and unwisely stumbling into his presence and dying because they were not prepared to do so. 
they would go through these mediators, the priest, a whole tribe. And I think it's interesting that in that chapter, when in, in chapter 18, you'll look with me there in Numbers chapter 18, verse 8, and then we'll get back to Malachi. It says, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, Here I myself have also given you charge of my heave offerings, all the holy gifts of the children of Israel. I have given them as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. In other words, this is a covenant that will last forever. And then in chapter of that same chapter, verse 19, just drop down to verse 19. It says, all the heave offerings of the holy things, which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters at, with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Do you understand what God is saying? He says, Aaron and to the tribe of Levi. He says, now when we reach the promised land, I'll give land, a portion of the land, to each of the remaining tribes. They'll all get their sections of land. And God did. He divided up the promised land for all the other tribes, except the tribe of Levi. They were never to be land possessing, a land-possessing tribe. But the beauty of it, the beauty of it, was God says, don't you worry. I'll take care of you. As, as long as you faithfully minister to me and come into my presence with reverence and fear, he says, I will always provide for you. And how did he do that? Do you remember? Annually, on a regular basis, the people were constantly bringing offerings to God. Many of these offerings consisted of beef, lamb, I mean, all kinds of meat, right? Goat. I don't know about pigeon, but anyway. And, and, and so they would trim the fat, God's portion, because he preferred it. Burn the fat on the offering, but then the meat they could keep. There you go. You, you, and they brought grain, a tenth of it, and, and God says, you'll, you'll be able to eat from that. Uh, they brought the, the, the juice from the grapes. He's, That's yours. He says, as they bring it, they dedicate it to God. God says, I bless it, and I, in turn, I feed you, I take care of you, and the tithes that they bring unto me, God says, I will bless it. After they have presented their tithes to me, but then I will use it to support you. Do you understand what God's? You see God's economy? God says, I will take care of you as a tribe. You don't need land. You don't need to be out there trying to raise crops when you need to be in the tabernacle taking care of my business. And with this covenant of love and peace and reverence, God is going back to Malachi chapter 9. God says, when I establish this covenant with Levi, he and his priest, they did just what I asked them to do. They were faithful. They brought the offerings just as I instructed. They showed reverence to me. They led the people. They spoke with words of peace and knowledge. And he says, and, and no injustice was found on their lips. They walked in peace. And, and he says, they turned many away from, from iniquity. They were very instrumental in helping my people to live godly lives because they were wonderful examples of godliness before the people. They did it right. Some of you remember what it's like to kind of look back in the good old days. Now I realize some of y'all are too young to have good old days because you're not good and you're not, well, you're good, but you're not old. But, but you know, sometimes you look back into the good old days and it just seemed like things just went along smoothly, you know? And just things were so good. And it, but, you know, God was looking back to the good old days during the time of those initial priests and how faithful they were and how effective they were in, in leading the people of God and interceding on behalf of the people of God. And you see, the thing is, God was always faithful to them and they were faithful to God. Then in verse 8, as we move forward in chapter 2, you'll see a big but. I guess I have to be careful how I say that. You'll see a but, okay? <laughs> but it's significant. I guess I should have said that. A significant but. Anytime God goes into a flow of words like that and then he injects a but, he, it's for a purpose. He's saying, I'm going, to I'm going to contrast. The early Levites, the early priests, oh, they were great. They were faithful. They were effective. But, but you... But you, 
And he's talking about the priest of that day, during the day of Malachi, during the day of Nehemiah and Ezra. He said, but you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base. And I'll just pause there for a second. I'll take your eyes quickly back up the page to verse, uh, to, to verse 3. Remember when God was saying to the priest, he says, you have so disgraced me, you have so dishonored me, you have so disrespected me, I will treat you contemptibly, I will, re I will rub refuse, the very dung from the offerings that you bring, I'll smear it on your faces, I'll make you uh, uh, just a, 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 a vision of, of putrid rejection to the people. Therefore, verse 9, I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways. You see his chastisement of a contemptuous priesthood and a broken covenant. Israel's spiritual leaders, the very ones that you see in the original covenant were, were supposed to be leading the people in the ways of God and loving him and honoring him and worshiping him and fearing him. They were the very ones that were committing terrible, terrible sin. And understand this, ladies and gentlemen. God is holy and he will not tolerate and look lightly upon those who, especially those, that he expects to represent him before the people. He has a high expectations for those that he has entrusted with the responsibility of representing him. And he is not tolerant of those who will disgrace his holiness or diminish his glory. With flagrant disobedience and disrespect. And that's exactly what was happening there. And God was saying through his prophet Malachi. I will have none of this. Might I throw this little footnote in there. That includes you and me. I know we're not Levites. I know that we're not formally priests in an organized religious system. But don't forget the fact that as messengers today. We have, a rep, we have a responsibility to our world. The minute that you and I chose to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of our lives, and we chose to become followers of Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. We come under a covenant. You and I are in a covenant with Holy God. It's not a covenant of law. It's not a covenant of blood. It's a covenant of love and grace. Nonetheless, it is a covenant. And just as He has promised to save us, to redeem us, to set us apart, He's rescued us from the eternal damnation of hell. He's adopted us into His family. He's blessed us with the presence of His Holy Spirit. He's given us the promises of His Word. He's given us the assurance of a home in heaven. He does expect you and me as His representatives to the people of the world to be faithful. You know, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13 through 16, Jesus says to the followers, his followers, to you and me, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Influence it. Preserve it. Flavor it with love and peace and joy and all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You are the light of the world. Shed the light of the gospel around you. Have a positive influence. Represent me in a positive way. Not only there, but you know we're in Romans in chapter 10. When Paul is, is addressing those followers of Christ there in, in Romans chapter 10, I think it's important that we go back and just realize what he's saying in chapter 10 of Romans in verse 14. Paul says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Talking about the people, lost people out there. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Brothers and sisters, can I remind you? You may not be an ordained minister. You may not be trained and called to preach from a pulpit. But do you understand that passage is talking about you too? Because every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a wonderful message. It's in our heart. It's called the gospel. 
And God is expecting those that he has entrusted with the responsibility to influence those who are lost and unsaved and, and, and depraved and separated from God. We are the ones who are supposed to be representing the truth of the gospel, the salt of the earth, the light of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are to be those positive influences. How in the world can we be so if we ourselves, like the priest in Malachi's day, we are steeped in sin? In 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul's talking about the responsibility that we have also as God's representatives to the world. Therefore, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you're familiar with this passage. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us. That means Paul. That means me. That means you. What? A, a, a ministry of reconciliation. He goes on to say that we are ambassadors for Christ. Who do you represent? Out there in the world. Do you represent your family? Do you represent your, your, your golf club? Do you represent your, 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 your hunting club? Do you represent your sewing club? Do you represent your school? Do you represent the company you work for? Do you represent a career? What do you represent? What is it that people hear the most consistently from you? Do you represent Christ? Could you hold your head up with a clear conscience and say, well, sure, I'm an ambassador for Christ. My feet are, are blessed to be able to carry the good news to my lost neighbors and my lost family members and lost associates. Oh, I'm blessed to be able to be a representative. Which one of the priestly groups would you think God would put you? You see, there are applications and things like this. It would be a terrible terrible shame for a people of God who have been blessed with such a blessed high calling to go chasing around after the fleshly desires of humanism and the idols of materialism and yet that's what's happening with so many of the people who call themselves Christians today they're just as guilty as the priest in Malachi's day well, as we move along in chapter 2, verse 10, we're going to look into how God is, is, is issuing a, a, a railing, a railing of the priest for the glaring sins. We don't use that verb rail much anymore. But in the dictionary, the verb rail, it's not, a, it's not the noun that you lean on, a rail. A rail, to, to rail somebody is to, to, to scold them and to revile them. Now, I was thinking about that and I got a few railings and a few rodings too. <laughs> from parents, got a few railings from some school teachers. Yeah, people that just, you know, have to set you straight. God is railing the priest of his day for the glaring sins. And we begin there in verse 10 to see in chapter 2 of Malachi. Their open acts of sexual and spiritual adultery violating God's holy institution of marriage. That's a big deal with God. And we'll see it. Look at verse 10. He says, and, and, and this is Malachi on behalf of God addressing the priest of his day. And he says, have we not all one father? The rhetorical answer to that rhetorical question, yes. Yes, we're all created by one, right? Has not God, one God created us? Yes. Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of our fathers, of, of the fathers. In verse 11 he goes on. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in the land, in, in Israel and in Jerusalem. For, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. 
He has married the daughter of a foreign god. And, and when he's speaking singularly here, he's talking it plurally with the priest and the, and the men, the people, about a terrible sin that is running rampant in the camp. He says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, in other words, fully conscious, and yet doing this in God's eyes, and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Let me just pause there for a second. Because I want you to understand the, the significance of what, what Malachi is saying there. Remember, I told you he's a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's interesting that when we go back to those books and we look at what these men were encountering, you understand even better what Malachi is saying. Because God had made it clear as they were going to go into the promised land that they were by in no way, shape, or form, fashion or form, were they to intermingle intimately with any of the pagan neighbors. He says, you won't do that. You won't do that. It's not that God was prejudiced, but it was because God was jealous. He had called a people to be His own people, to be holy, to practice the very godly principles that He had given to them. He knew the hearts of the pagans. He knew their false gods. He knew their immoral ways. He knew the danger of them engaging in intimate relationships with the pagans. So let's look at Nehemiah's, I mean Ezra's take on it first in Ezra chapter 9. And you don't have to go back there if you don't want. I just want to take you back to that chapter because there in chapter 9, Ezra is recounting how the people in verse 1 of chapter 9 says the people of Israel and the priest and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with the respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and Amorites. They were marrying all kinds of pagan women. And God goes on to say through Ezra, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the whole, now this is important, so that the holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. God says, not only are the common men, Israelites, doing it, but the leaders are leading the way. The priests are doing it. Now, Ezra is a godly man who, as a scribe, understands and knows the teachings of the Scriptures, the law. He knows the will of God related to this kind of sinful intermingling with pagan wives. And so it, it, it tells us that over in that same chapter when Ezra had heard about this and he says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. He says, after all that you have done for us, Lord, after all that you've been so gracious to take care of us and deliver us, he says, and here we allow ourselves, you've not only taken us and rescued us from the Egyptians, you've brought us through the wilderness, you've brought us into the promised land, even when we rebelled against you and you allowed us to be taken into captivity, you didn't annihilate us, you brought us back, you restored us into the homeland, and look what we're doing. And look what we're doing in your very sight, O oh God. And Ezra was so distraught, he says, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out some of my hair from my head and beard, and I sat astonished. I guess, Pastor Chad, sometimes you know, as pastors, we get a little disappointed, and people, and you might want to tear a shirt, pull out some hair. And just sat down flabbergasted and said, I can't believe it. Not often, but it does happen. But Ezra was just blown away. How can this be? In fact, he wept so hard. His distraught, awful grief was so prevalent. He was just devastated. 
and crying out to God. And it says that the people gathered around him and says now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large congregation of men and women and children assembled to him from Israel for the people wept bitterly. Nehemiah's take was, in those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. You see, this is the problem. This is what Paul says in Corinthians. He said, don't. He's talking to believers there. When Paul says to those Corinthian believers, and he says to us, don't as believers be unequally yoked. You have no business as a child of God. A redeemed, blood-bought, spirit-filled child of God. You have no business entering into an intimate relationship with someone who does not have Jesus Christ solidly as their Lord and Savior. You run from a relationship with that, like that. I don't care how handsome that guy is, how beautiful that girl is, or how much they promise that after y'all date, you're gonna get, they, they're going to get in church. Oh, listen, let me tell you something. It's a proven fact. It's a proven fact. These naive young Christian girls or naive young Christian guys that will allow themselves to get sucked into an intimate relationship with an unbelieving person and marries them, it's a proven fact. They get pulled out of the church. They get pulled away from God a whole lot more than they ever draw their spouse to the Lord. Someone illustrated it this way. If I stand up here and I say, okay, if there anybody to come up here and pull me out of this bench, king of the mountain, I'd be kind of foolish. Because you see, if you're up here as a believer and that non-believer's down there in sin and immorality, guess what? They can pull you down a whole lot easier than you can pull them up towards the Lord. That's the way it operates. And God is saying to His people then, Ezra, totally just blown away. How can you do this kind of things? Now, Nehemiah had a little different approach. He wasn't quite as priestly as, as Ezra. Ezra just tore his clothes, put out some hair, and boohooed and cried before the Lord. I'd kind of like to be more like Nehemiah. He's kind of like a Christianized spiritual Rambo. Says <laughs> so in verse 25 of, uh, of Nehemiah chapter 13, Verse 25, so, so, so I contended with them. Nehemiah said, I got in the face. I, just got, I went, hey, I didn't sit down and boo and cry. I went and got in the face. Got right nose to nose with them bulldogs. And he says, I, I contended with them and cursed them. Now, I would advocate we do that, brother, Pastor Chad. But speak strongly to them. But listen, he goes on to say, to those men that had intermarried and done this foolish thing, he says, I struck them, struck some of them, and I pulled out their hair. I said, yeah. I'm yanking my hair out. He says, I, I pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take daughters for your sons of yourselves. But you see, what I want you to see is Malachi is writing from a history. He knows what Nehemiah has dealt with. He knows what Ezra has dealt with. And so he's confronting these priests he says, how dare you violate this very sacred institution of God, marriage. Their hypocritical and unfruitful offerings was another point of contention. As we go back to Malachi chapter 2, I want you to see in verse 13. He says, and this is the second thing. Or as we would say, and you're railing somebody. And you've just given them a blistering, you know, lecture. And I hated it. If I was on the receiving end, you know, and somebody's lecturing me and just railing me, I hated it if there was two parts. When they would say, and another thing. Oh, man. I said, you killed me already. And God says, and, and another thing in verse 13. Another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore. 
nor receive it with good will for, from your hands. He says, and yet you say, why? For what reason? You see, the priests were coming. God was allowing them to suffer consequences. God was not blessing them anymore. God was withholding His blessings. They were coming because only the priests could come to the altars. And they were coming and, and they, were, they were crying out to God. Oh Lord, we just, you know, we don't understand. You don't bless us. We're going through pain. We're having consequences. We've got suffering. There's crime. Oh Lord, why don't you bless us anymore? They're weeping and wailing, which sounds like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They're putting on a show. And God says basically through Malachi to these wicked priests, He says, listen, your, your tears don't matter. Your crying doesn't matter. You're not moving my heart. You see, they had forgotten a very important principle that we find in Psalms 66, 18, where the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart and don't repent of it, God won't hear my prayers. Dear friend, listen, I, I'm a firm believer in altar call. I'm a firm believer that after the preaching of a message and singing of songs and God moving in the midst of His people and the Spirit of God convicting people of sin, I'm a firm believer that you don't need to wait till you get home. You don't need to wait till you get in your car. You can come to the altar represented at the front of the church and you can get on your knees and there you can make things right with God. And He'll hear your prayer and He'll forgive your sin. But I got news for you. And see, some Christians are guilty of this. Don't come to the altar. I don't care how dramatic you get. I don't care how many tears you shed. I don't care how much you beat on your chest. Don't cry out to God for anything if you know good and well you've got sin in your life and you've yet not to confess it or repent of it because God said to these priests, it's to no avail. You're wasting your time. And ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't change. And even their emotional petitions were nullified by their sin. And God refuses to bless those who violate His sacred covenants. And Malachi is reminding the priest of his day and the people of his day that they were committing a terrible sin in the very presence of Almighty God. So as we look along in verse 14 there, he says, for, they were saying, for what reason? Why? why? Why, God? Why are you not hearing our prayers? He says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. He's talking to the Jewish men. He's talking to the Jewish priests. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. He says, with, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Why, why does he keep saying wife of the youth? Because quite honestly in the Jewish culture of that day, it was very common for a girl to get married, to be betrothed as we saw with Joseph and Mary, at a very tender age. Now I'll appeal to those of you who are daddies of daughters. How would you like some bozo, excuse me, young man, coming and pledging to your sweet little early teen daughter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you, I'm going to cherish you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to protect you, and you're going to be the one woman of my life for as long as we shall both live in front of God and everybody else. Amen. And then he turns around before you know it and he's out there running around with all these other women. And here's your darling little teenage daughter just boo-hooing her eyes out. And let me tell you something. It was a tragic thing in those days because when a woman was divorced by her husband or put away by her husband, she was on her own. She was on her own. He was deserting her. She was a victim of anything that would come her way. And God saw this. Let me tell you something. I don't care how great of a daddy you are and how sweet your daddy's girl is. Let me tell you something. Nobody loves that little girl more than the Almighty God who created her and who died on the cross for her. And God is saying, how dare you men treat your, these girls like that? They are your partner covenant partner for life. And you're running after these pagan 
whores. God says, how dare you? Well then as we go on, we're going to close with chapter 2, verse 16 17. God shares His indictment on divorce. Before I read these two verses, I want to give a quick disclaimer because unfortunately there are some erroneous, misguided people out there who have tried to insist that divorce is the quote, unpardonable sin. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't commit the unpardonable sin as Jesus described it in the Gospel. You can reject Jesus Christ and condemn your soul to hell, yes. But the unpardonable sin is not divorce. The unpardonable sin is not suicide. Because the Bible tells us clearly that sin is sin. And thank God for 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, written to Christians where God, knowing that His people will fall into sin from time to time, and He tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But all, having said that, God issues a very emphatic declaration of the sacredness of marriage because marriage is a sacred union designed by God. You go back into Genesis in chapter 2 and you find where God lovingly extracts a rib from Adam because he realizes of all the things he's created that were good, the one thing that was not good was that man was alone. And so God sets out to custom make a mate, a helpmate for this lonely man. He's grateful that the man didn't chase after a baboon or a chimpanzee. So he said, I gotta hurry up. Saw how Adam was eyeballing that gorilla. So he's quickly fashioning this. I, that's my little side there. That's not in scripture. He's fashioning this 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 creature. Looking at Adam, looks over at Adam, you know. And he finishes. He wakes Adam up. You know, that divine anesthesia. Adam says, oh, what happened? What happened? I just, you know, I was looking at an ape and all of a sudden I fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, just imagine the Garden of Eden, all that, parad- the, 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 that beautiful paradisiacal setting and, 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 and God says, i got a surprise for you, Adam. And Adam says, what, 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 what? God says, Ta-da! And he steps aside. Now this is my version. And there she is. I mean, can you imagine? Tailor made by God. Adam's eyes go, you know. He says, whoa, man! And he calls her woman. She's bone in my bones. She's flesh in my flesh. And God says, yes. And for this cause... Please don't go back out there and say this is gospel according to Charlie, okay? But I, my, my verse is pretty interesting. But, but, but the, the Bible says he created woman for man. He says, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, the, the strongest bond that a man knows. And he shall leave them, not abandon them, but he shall separate and he shall unite himself with his, self, his helpmate. And he says they shall become what? One Flesh. One flesh. So do you understand how God looks upon those who were dead? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 19, that which God joins together, what? Let not man separate. God says, don't you dare take that which I have united as one flesh and rip it apart. It's violent. It's destructive. It's deadly. You understand that God is the architect of human society? Do you understand that in His infinite wisdom that God designed the marriage and the family to be the very basic building block that would support all of human society? I'm not a builder. I have to appeal to David Fry and some of those guys like Charlie Bird and Sam Hine. But I do know this much. You lay a foundation and you begin to build a building on it. If you start tampering with that foundation, you put anything less than what God or what the the plan calls for, that building is going to start shaking. It's going to start crumbling. It's going to come down. And ladies and gentlemen, God saw the dismantling of the human society when He looked. He saw that they were getting away from the very basic building block that He had designed. 
I think about how in our nation today, you probably heard it on the news this week, the state of Hawaii is joining a growing number of states that are succumbing to the pressure of the very powerful gay rights activist movement. And they've legalized gay marriages. It's happening, ladies and gentlemen. When, when the divorce rate in our nation continues to spiral upward and upward and upward, listen, it's, it's easier to get out of a, a, a marriage than it is a telephone contract nowadays. You see what's happening and God saw it and you understand why God says, I hate divorce. That's what he says there in verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says, I hate divorce for it covers one's garment with violence says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God says, this is the way I designed it. Marriage is supposed to be sacred. It's supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be honoring. It's supposed to be lifelong. Marriage is a sacred reflection of the magnificent and beautiful mystery of the union between the Messiah, excuse me, Messiah and his church. Completely unknown until the New Testament time. A quote from Dr. John MacArthur. Do you understand? God knowing at the very beginning what the relationship was going to be between the Messiah and his church, the body of Christ, he modeled human relationships after that perfect relationship. And in God's eyes, unwarranted divorce is a gross sin in the eyes of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, anyone that divorces his wife other than for sexual immorality, he says it's a sin. And there are scriptural exceptions. There are scriptural exceptions to this principle of divorce. In the Old Testament, you remember I was telling you about in Ezra's day and Nehemiah's day? Where the men were marrying pagan women? <clears throat> you go back and read in those chapters. You go back and read in the book of Nehemiah. The people were very convicted in their hearts. And Ezra and Nehemiah called the people together and says, you will put away that doesn't mean kill. You will put away. You will separate yourselves from these pagan wives. They didn't just smooth it over and say, oh, listen, I understand. You made a mistake. You didn't know any better. So therefore, we'll just, we'll accept that and go on. No, they couldn't, folks. You've got to understand. Under the covenant of the law, they couldn't allow these men to continue in relationships with their pagan wives. Because it was infiltrating the very spiritual purity for which God had set the nation apart to be. Now it was painful. You better believe it was painful. These men having done this thing and having to send their pagan wives away with the children that came out of those relationships. But it was a very necessary step that, had, that was a, an exception to the divorce principle in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 19 that if a Christian is married to a, 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 a believer, husband or wife, and that husband or wife is engaged in spiritual immorality and refuses to repent, Jesus says in Matthew 19, they're dissolved of their responsibilities. The innocent party in that relationship are dissolved of their responsibilities and divorce can transpire. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, Verses 10 through 16, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. It he was in a mess. They were engaged in all kinds of sin. But Paul was pointing out to those that had already married unbeliever, unbelievers. Despite his warning, they, they married unbelieving spouses. Now I think it's interesting, Paul says, if you are married to an unbeliever, and that unbelieving husband chooses to stay with you, he says, stay in the marriage. You don't divorce them just because they're unbeliever. You stay, you're already there. Keep witnessing to them. Keep loving them. Keep trying to, to, to sanctify them in, through faith to the Lord. But he says, in the case where your unbelieving spouse walks out on you and deserts you and abandons the relationship, then Paul says that dissolves the marriage. And so there are those examples of, of exceptions to divorce are in, in, in the Bible. But the important thing for us as Christians to see is this. As I pointed out, yes, divorce is sin. How do you deal with sin? Do you ignore it? Do you sweep it under the rug? No. Somebody asked Billy Graham one time, Dr. Billy Graham, well, what, what, do, you, what do you do with you know, Christians who are divorced? He says, you know what? You can't unscramble eggs. You can't. You know? 
If people have, 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 have fallen prey to or committed the sin of divorce, then like any other sin, you need to confess it. You need to be repentant of it. And come before God and start out, out a clean, with, with a clean slate with, with fear of the Lord and reverence for God and a deep respect for marriage and make this marriage count. The worst thing that we can do as Christians is look down our nose at individuals who have suffered through it. And I say suffer because divorce from, as a pastor, having counseled people through this and as a social worker having dealt with it in marriages and families, divorce is a very painful, painful process. And we need to look upon people with eyes of, of understanding and compassion that have gone through this and, and speak redemptively to them and encouraging to them. But I'm going to tell you something. Newsflash. God's principles are still intact. God says marriage is sacred. The church needs to be more proactive in standing for biblical marriage. We need to get our head out of the sand. I got news for the people in Washington. It doesn't matter what the opinion of the Supreme Court justices is. God says marriage is the union of one man and one woman. It is sacred. I don't care what the president chooses to endorse. The fact is, holy God says there's only one fashion of marriage that is sacred and that is between one man and one woman for life. And it's time that the church become more proactive. And we need to take a more active role in counseling our young people, in counseling our young adults, and being involved in helping them in making this crucial decision, we need to help them to understand that, that marriage is not just getting hooked up, hitched up, or whatever you call it out there. It is a sacred moment where a man and a woman are coming together before God and they're entering into a covenant relationship that is sacred and God is blessing it. And the church subsequently blesses it. And we need to do everything we can to enhance marriages, to support marriages, to help marriages to thrive and to be healthy and strong. And this is what God blesses. This is what God calls us to.